Good Golly, I'm Polly M is a podcast intended for mature audiences. Each episode may contain strong language and slash or sexual references. Hello, welcome back to Good Golly, I'm Polly Am with me, your host, Trisha. If this is the first time you're joining us, this is a podcast talking about all things polyamorous through my own lens. If you're joining me from my last episode, which was part one of polyamory for dummies, this is part two. So I've already talked about definitions of common polyamory terms, and now I'm going to be talking about common polyamory and non-monogamous styles. All of this is basically just to give you all out there a sort of baseline of where I'm coming from and my experience with non-monogamy. So if you haven't listened to part one, I'd hop over there and quickly listen to it because I'm probably going to be using a lot of those terms I've already defined. Or if you're very comfortable with polyamory terms, stick around. So we're going to be talking about styles now. And I'm going to try and do the non-polyamory styles of non-monogamy before I talk about all the different types of polyamory styles. And just as a little caveat, I don't think that I have all the styles of non-monogamy and polyamory that there are that exist within the world. So I'm bound to miss any. If I do and you want me to talk about my feelings about that specific type of non-monogamy, do feel free to get in touch and I will either address it on the next episode or I'll send you a very special message directly to you answering those questions. All right, caveats aside, introduction done, let's get in. And the first style I'm going to talk about is swinging. You've probably heard of this before. Um, It is kind of non-monogamy. I kind of think about it as monogamy with sexy spice. It's generally someone who is in a committed relationship with each other and they will engage in usually sexual activity with other people. And that can come in the form of attending swingers clubs or going to sex parties or um, making friends with other swingers and having little meetups like that. It is kind of monogamy it's pretty much monogamy um but just with a little bit extra monogamy with a little bit extra and like i say it's usually sexual and it's almost all the time between the two of you there are swingers who swing individually and there are swingers who swing exclusively as a couple Every swinging couple has its own rules and regulations. And like I believe I've already said when I was talking about how I came to realize I was non-monogamous, I spent two years working in a swingers club. And then within my monogamous relationship also went through a stage of being swingers. So I am quite well versed (laughs) in swinging for someone of my relatively young age on the swinging scene 
And mostly what I see are couples who are monogamous, but just like to play with other people. And that's generally what you'll come into contact with when you hear the word swinging. Leading on from swinging, we have open relationships, which you may have heard people refer to as monogamish, where you're monogamous, kind of. Um, and usually with open relationships, there is a designated couple, but one or both partners are able to have external endeavors of some sort. Again, like swinging, it's usually just sexual or physical. It generally doesn't have allowances for emotional commitment. It's usually the sort of case that you might be able to go out on a couple of dates that lead to after date sexy fun times, or you might be able to hook up with people on a night out, or you might be able to solely seek someone out for a hookup. But it does usually mean that you're not allowed to form emotional bonds. You might not be able to see someone more than a specific amount of times. It generally avoids having any additional emotional commitment, which is why I and many other polyamorous people don't really count it as polyamory because polyamory by definition allows multiple emotional connections. Okay, so we're gonna move on now to our first official polyamorous style. And this one is kitchen table polyamory. The reason it's called kitchen table polyamory is because it's the kind of polyamorous relationship setup where everyone who is connected to anyone within that setup could happily sit around the kitchen table to have dinner or for a games night or whatever. Um, that's, that's pretty much where the, where the name comes from. And it is a kind of polyamory where all someone's metas and metas and metas are pretty much happy to have platonic relationships with each other. It means that if you have a nesting partner, your other partner can come over to your house and you don't have to, you know, tell your nesting partner to leave because so-and-so is coming over or your nesting partner doesn't have to feel like, oh, I don't really want to see them. So I'm going to head off and go do something else. And it also means that you can hang out with each other. I am a big practicer of kitchen table polyamory. I like knowing my metas. I like forming my own platonic relationships with them. Throughout my whole polyamory journey, I have very often been friends with metas on my own terms. So we'll go for a coffee or we'll hang out and watch a movie without our shared partner necessarily having to be part of our plans at all that's how I I best work um I think mostly just because I really like connecting with people and I can't really have enough people in my life generally uh so I like I like that part of it and also I find that if I'm dating someone and they're dating someone I'm probably gonna like the person that they're dating just because obviously I like that person and that person likes me so logically the person that they're dating is also probably going to be someone that I like. 
Um, and throughout my history that has proven to be the case and so that's been really great for me in terms of being able to actually get to know my metas and I've been really lucky in that my partners have all gotten on with each other so far Um, obviously if you've listened to any other part of this podcast you know that I currently only have two committed partners but I do have a handful of people who I am dating the only reason I don't call them partners is because we haven't had those kinds of conversations and I don't want to commit them to something that is more serious than they're ready for but I have a lot of important people in my life or people who I would hope to become committed partners at some time and they have met one or both of my committed partners at any given time um and they all get on so i've been really fortunate that way on the flip side to kitchen table polyamory is parallel polyamory so with parallel polyamory there's not really any crossover between metas they are likely to know that another partner exists Uh, They may say hi to them if they see them out and about. They may meet each other in sort of big group situations, but they don't really have any desire to hang out on a one-on-one basis or to hang out if it's just the metas and their shared partner or partners. It's just everything is very separate. Uh, There's no crossover and that's fine. That's just what everyone in the relationship wants. So next we're moving on to hierarchical polyamory. And if you're not super familiar with polyamory or different kind of polyamory styles, this might be the one that immediately comes to mind. It's where someone has a primary or main partner and any other partners that they have sort of come second or third, depending on how many levels they have in their hierarchy to that main partner. I don't like it. I have yet to be given a situation where being involved in hierarchical polyamory is exempt from being unethical. And I don't think any specific kind of polyamory is in itself exempt from being unethical but I think hierarchical polyamory is without a doubt the one that easiest slips into unethical behavior and I think that stems from the fact that you are predetermining that one person is going to be more important than any other person in your life I I think (laughs) I think it's really unfair to ask someone to limit their emotions and one of the first things that I always hear whenever I talk about my specific feelings about hierarchical polyamory is people who say yeah but everyone's aware of it you know like my secondary only wants to be my secondary because they have their own primary and it's like okay cool that works for you now but what happens if anyone in this specific situation decides that their emotional investment in any person is changing what happens if a secondary then wants to become a primary or what happens if a primary somehow finds someone else who they want to be their primary what happens to that person's primary do they then become a secondary and I just think trying to limit the way or the depth of emotion that someone can have in a relationship is intrinsically flawed um and 
even if everyone in the situation signs up to it or agrees with it I think it's really impossible to sort of predict how your feelings are going to progress towards anybody or towards any situation so hierarchical polyamory for me is something that I don't vibe with I'm very careful about how I talk about it because I know that there are a lot of people who are in hierarchical relationships because of in their opinion you know if they have specific mental health needs or specific care needs then the partner who has experienced that for the longest time will be their primary and it might be someone who they live with but I also feel like it is entirely possible to have those needs met by someone who you might live with or you might see more than you see your other partners without specifically defining them as your primary so I I don't like it I don't like hierarchical polyamory I try not to date anyone who practices hierarchical polyamory because I don't want someone putting expectations of my emotional investment on me um and I don't want to put them on myself even if I think oh yeah that's completely doable right now because you know I have these other partners and I'm fulfilled in this way there's nothing to say that my feelings about this person won't change or deepen in any way you know relationships go through so much and they change so often it's really hard to start a relationship and be like yep this is exactly how the relationship is going to be throughout the whole of the relationship and that has not been the case for any of my relationships I don't think one single relationship in my life romantic or otherwise is now the way it was when it started so hierarchical polyamory is a big no for me um and if you have any experiences or reasons as to how it can be practiced in a more ethical way I'm super open to hearing them but I will say that it is going to be very difficult to convince me that hierarchical polyamory isn't inherently unbalanced and therefore unethical sorry Um, And then on the flip side to hierarchical polyamory is egalitarian polyamory. And the definition of egalitarian polyamory is a situation or relationship that is fair, equitable, and in which all parties have equal power. Now that form of polyamory is what I used to say that I practice, and I still often use it, and we'll talk about this later on when I talk about the style that I'm thinking of right now. I don't want to ruin the surprise. (laughs) Um, but essentially egalitarian polyamory arose out of a need to avoid hierarchical polyamory Um, and that allows you to talk about partners who are maybe slightly more invested in your life than others without necessarily giving them an importance so nesting partner is one of the terms that's used a lot in egalitarian polyamory because it takes away you know, the need to say, oh, my main partner or my primary partner. It gives you a very easy way to say, this is a partner who I live with. And people often know when you use nesting partner that you're not someone who practices hierarchical polyamory. So it's very easy to see where you stand. Obviously, if someone says, oh, this is my primary partner, then you know pretty automatically that they're hierarchical. And if someone says, oh, this is my nesting partner, you know that they're probably practicing some kind of polyamory that isn't hierarchical. Another thing that's good about 
egalitarian polyamory is that it goes out of its way to address couples privilege so it means that each party in the relationship has the same amount of power so you know one of your partners can't be like oh wait no you can't see this person tonight because actually I have to go out and do something for work so you need to stay home and watch the kids or something like that or um I'm trying to think of another example or oh I'm feeling really sad tonight so can you call off your date with such and such so we can have a movie night or whatever it, it avoids that but also egalitarian polyamory can there can be situations like if you are dating someone and they do have a really bad night or a really bad day and you feel like you need to comfort them egalitarian polyamory means that you have that option of being like okay well I'm gonna speak to this partner tell them the situation and let them know that we'll reorganize it kind of puts the onus on you to make decisions about your relationship rather than letting a pre-existing relationship or someone else make those decisions for you there is in my opinion quite a lot of crossover between egalitarian polyamory and relationship anarchy so relationship anarchy was the other term that was in my head before I started talking about egalitarianism where I was thinking well which one do I dent which one do I identify as now I've been finding myself identifying more towards relationship anarchy and I'll tell you for why so <laughs> relationship anarchy which you may have seen in the wild shortened to RA you know for relationship anarchy is a relationship philosophy that is generally attributed to Andy Nordgren and it takes its basis from political anarchy in that its foundation for one of a better word is that all relationships whether they're romantic or not should only be defined by the involved parties um and these relationships can vary but generally mean that they are non-hierarchical and anti-prescriptionist the other thing about relationship anarchy is that you don't necessarily have to be polyamorous to be a relationship anarchist, but a lot of relationship anarchists are non-monogamous in some way, and a lot of them do identify as polyamorous. And I think that's just because of the nature of thinking that all your relationships should only be defined by the involved parties. A term that I mentioned in the previous episode was the relationship escalator. And with relationship anarchists, you'll find that they aren't interested in the relationship escalator. So all of their relationships will progress however they feel each relationship needs to progress. So that might mean that for one relationship, they go on three dates and then they have sex and then they go on a few more dates and then they decide that they're actually dating and then a year and a half from then they decide to move in and then for a different relationship they might move in with them after the fifth date because they figure out that actually they're really really compatible in deep deep ways that mean that it makes sense for them to move in with each other and neither of those relationships are either more important or less important than the other because they're completely defined by the people in those relationships and I've started moving towards relationship anarchy because I found that my approach to relationships and all kinds of relationships not just romantic relationships tend to fall outside of what is deemed the right way to do it by society so 
all of my friendships and all of my relationships and all of my, well, all of my friendships, all of my romantic relationships, all of my semi-romantic relationships, anything like that, they're all dictated by one, how I feel about that person and two, how that person feels about me. I have said very often that I think it's completely cool to have sex with your friends without necessarily being it being a friends with benefits situation. Like I have lots of friends that I would happily sleep with um, without it affecting our relationship from my side. And I have lots of friends that I would never sleep with because I know it would affect our relationship from their side, even if it wouldn't affect it from my side. Um, I think the key part of relationship anarchy is just giving the people in the relationships the power within the relationships. And they're the only ones who have the power. So it doesn't matter what your other partners say. It doesn't matter what your parents say. It doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter what your best friend says. The only person who has any say within those relationships are you and that other person in the relationship. I really vibe with it. I think it's a really great way to look at relationships because I think relationships are more complex than they tend to be given credit for. I have a lot of friendships that are to me just as serious as romantic relationships, but I'm not romantically invested in those people, but I love them and I care about them a lot. And I'm really, really of the opinion that you should let your feelings about people dictate your relationships with them as opposed to oh well I like them this much so it means we should be friends but oh now I've started liking them a little bit more so maybe I should date them oh I don't know I don't know obviously if that's what works for you cool fine go with it but I just kind of feel like the existing ways of labeling relationships are a bit prescriptionist and restricting restrictive restrictive restricting is it restrictive or restricting I think it's restrictive restricting doesn't matter which whichever one of those is the correct word I think it's that um so I really like relationship anarchy as a term and that is how I've really started describing myself as of late because I think it speaks a bit more towards my whole approach towards all relationships rather than just my romantic relationships. So I still identify as practicing egalitarian polyamory, but I think it's just easier and more accurate for me to say that I'm a relationship anarchist because then it means that I get to address all of my different relationships all at once. So it's helpful for me. And I think this is a pretty appropriate segue into solo polyamory. Uh, so solo polyamory is something that you may have heard and been confused about because I've seen a lot of people be like, oh wait, but if you're solo polyamorous, does that mean you're single or a solo polyamorous person is someone who is polyamorous, but just doesn't have any relationships at the time. And that's not the case. So someone who practices solo polyamory is someone who chooses to operate their relationships without ever identifying as part of a couple. So they will tend to not see themselves as, you know, one of two people or one of however many people they're dating. And 
that kind of relationship style often involves deciding to never share a home or finances because they want to be completely independent and it might also involve a desire not to have children or to co-parent so it generally is a way of practicing polyamory while also retaining someone's independence completely um it doesn't mean that you have to decide that you never want to share a home or you never want to share a bank account or you never want to have children or you never want to co-parent. None of those are particular prerequisites to practicing solo polyamory, but generally you will find that many people who do practice solo polyamory will have one or more of those desires. And practicing solo polyamory doesn't mean that they don't have relationships that are just as fulfilling as anyone who doesn't practice solo polyamory. Like they still will have meaningful relationships. They still will have serious relationships. They'll still have relationships where they fall head over heels for people. But it just means that the likelihood of them ever deciding to combine their lives in any way is quite low. Um, I don't know much about solo polyamory beyond what I have spoken to my friends or random online internet strangers who are solo polyamorous about um and I am part of a couple of solo polyamory groups where I don't really weigh in on anything I just take the learning on um for one my own information and two to be a better partner to anyone who may be interested in me and may be solo polyamorous. I think leaning towards relationship anarchy makes that slightly easier for me than it may be for other people because again the parameters of that relationship will just be defined by the two of us if and when we get to that point. But that is pretty much the extent of my knowledge on solo polyamory. I think that it's just really important to acknowledge that, you know, practicing SOPO doesn't mean that they're any less invested than anyone who doesn't practice SOPO. It's just a different kind of relationship style that works for people for a variety of reasons. It may be um, an increased sense of independence due to past relationships and limiting factors. It may be that you know they don't ever want kids so they know that they don't want to be involved in a relationship that will end up getting to the point where kids are an option it could be that they just really like their own space so they know that they'll never want to live with anybody else they may be happy to see someone you know five out of seven days a week or literally see someone every day as long as they have their own home to go back to. There could be any variety of reasons that someone decides that they vibe more with solo polyamory than any other style, but it doesn't mean that they're less invested. And I just think that's really important to say because I think one of the biggest misconceptions about solo polyamory is that it's a more casual style or it's less meaningful. And I don't think that's true. Okie dokie. So stepping off of my soapbox, we are going to talk about the last 
relationship style that I have for this episode and it's monopolyam relationships. So this is, as you may be able to guess, a relationship where one person is monogamous and one person is polyamorous. They do exist. I personally don't know anyone in monopolyam relationships. To my understanding, they can be quite difficult because, you know, what you're doing is you're meshing together two quite different relationship styles. Um, and that's not even, you know, taking into account sub-styles that may fall into either being monogamous or being polyamorous. So they can be quite complex. They can be quite a lot of work. But I know that some people can make it work. I am aware of people who are in successful monopolyam relationships, although I don't know them personally myself. And I expect the actual workings of the relationship are very similar to relationship anarchy because I doubt that there is any sort of cookie cutter monopolyam way that works for everybody. I think especially because monogamous people can be so different and polyamorous people can be so different. I doubt that there is any one set way or any one set definition for a monopolyam relationship beyond one person being monogamous and one person being polyamorous. But if they they can they can exist without it necessarily being someone who is cheating on someone else. It can just be that someone knows that they're monogamous, but they are super in love with their partner. They don't want to date anybody else. They don't want to try and find anybody else. And that partner is polyamorous. And they know that asking them to not be polyamorous would be detrimental to them. So they decide to have their monogamous relationship and they are fine with their polyamorous partner having additional relationships. It's it's complicated I'm sure and comes with its own set of challenges but I think relationships in and of themselves are complicated and come with their own sets of challenges so it might not be that it's any more challenging than any other relationship but if you've ever heard you know people talking about monopolyam relationships and being like well surely that doesn't work or maybe you are in that kind of situation where you're monogamous, but you're dating someone who's polyamorous and you don't know, oh, can it work? It can, it can. And I'm sure there are a load of resources out there to help you work through that. If anyone wants me to talk more about monopolyam relationships, I'm happy to do my own research and see if I can make it a bit more accessible or a bit more bite-sized, if it seems like a bit of a daunting topic. I don't know too much about them because I'm not in that situation. Um, I have dated people who are monogamous or who have never identified as polyamorous or never tried being polyamorous before. None of them currently, as is probably obvious, are current committed partners. So I don't have any intimate knowledge of the ins and outs of making a monopolyam relationship work but I do know that they do work so have that as a nice little a hopeful ray of light in case you are in that kind of situation and you are being told that it can never work or you're not really seeing anything out there that demonstrates that it can work also little secret all of the media representation about polyamory is bad.
okay, not all, that's probably unfair, but a lot of the media representation about polyamory is bad. And there's a whole episode dedicated to that. So essentially just don't trust the media. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it can't work. It can, and there are ways to make it work. Cool. That's it. That's the end of this episode. Um, So now that we've talked about all of the sort of terms and I've kind of laid a baseline about me and my approach to it from now on we're getting intimate we're getting all about me and my opinions and my experiences and the experiences and opinions of people who I can get to talk to me we've done all the base stuff we've done all the polyam admin so now we can really get up close and personal. So starting with our next episode, you'll really be getting to know me and I'll just be ranting (laughs) about polyamory and trying to do as much education about polyamory as I can. Um, And each episode will have its own topic. So I won't have to do this whole, but I'll talk about this in a future episode kind of thing because the future episode will be that episode. So for our next episode, you will get to meet my partners. They will be here. They will be talking. They will be communicating. It's going to be cool. You will be able to hear someone's voice that isn't my voice because I'm sure you're getting tired of it by now. So I'll give you a break before you get more of my voice. So (laughs) that's our plan for the next show. As always, if you want to get in touch with me or you want to ask any questions, you can email me on goodgollypodcast at gmail.com. And I have a Twitter now. So if you want to tweet me, you can do so. My at is goodgollypod because goodgollypodcast was too long for Twitter. So if you want to tweet me, it's just at goodgollypod. Um, And that's about it for now. So yeah, you can email me or you can tweet me and I will be back soon accompanied by two other extra voices. So hopefully I will talk to you then. Until then, have a great week. Stay safe and we'll speak soon. Bye.